Welcome to the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas that are shaping the future of agribusiness. Innovation, resourcefulness, and collaboration are essential for feeding a growing population, and we believe the agriculture industry is up for the challenge. Please welcome your host, Tim Hammerich. How's it going? Thanks so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hammerich. I'm an agribusiness recruiter, and it's my pleasure to bring you these stories every week of the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agriculture. This show is a proud part of the Farm and Rural Ag Network, so if you love ag podcasts and blogs and vlogs, and in a brand new magazine called Ag Now, free digital magazine, head over to farmruralag.com for all of that. Well, we are in the midst of our series, Sustainability at Scale, and I thought it would be a good opportunity here in episode 106 to just check in with you. I think sustainability is obviously a very broad term. We've talked about that on on past episodes, and it's so broad that I think it's a double-edged sword doing a series on. On on one hand, the, the good side is that I think all of these stories have very distinct differences, so it's not like, uh, well, I, I heard some of you say like blockchain series kind of got to be, okay, we've heard enough about blockchain, we get it, you know, it's a mutable ledger and builds trust, all this stuff. It, it, but I think with sustainability, it, it, it really can go in so many different directions that it may Maybe doesn't get stale. At least I hope. Uh, the the flip side of that is, I, it's it's a little bit difficult to make it a cohesive series. Um, so just giving you a little bit of self critique on the fly. I would love to hear your thoughts. Uh, if you're an iTunes listener and haven't left a review, that would be a great place to provide feedback. Uh, if you have left a review or you're not iTunes person or can't leave a review on Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts, uh, hit me up on Twitter at Tim Hamrich. I would love to hear your feedback on this sustainability at scale series. I always enjoy hearing from each and every one of you uh, whenever I get a chance. I am genuinely excited about this episode here today. We have on the show Rachel Loudon, who's a food historian. I was uh, forwarded on Twitter an article that Rachel wrote called A Plea for Culinary Modernism that I started reading without having a clue what that meant. And as I I was reading, I became more and more fascinated by this concept of how we look at food today um, as a technology in the age of industrialization and genetic engineering. It's not far-fetched for us to think of food as a technology. But what Rachel argues and will show you in this interview is that food for a long, 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 long time has been a technology. Since agriculture was born, food has been a technology adapted for our needs to digest, to, uh, to make it more palatable, to make it more desirable. We've always been sort of advancing the technology of food. And so a lot of the assumptions you may have about what is sustainable, what food looked like before the industrial age, uh, is probably going to get called into question today and I, in a good way. I think this is just super fascinating. So Rachel Loudon is a prize-winning author of the book, uh, The Food Paradise, Exploring Hawaii's Culinary Heritage, and a co-editor of the Oxford Companion to the History of Modern Science. She has uh, her most recent book out called Cuisine and Empire that I am giving away. Uh, So if you would like a copy of that book, stay tuned to the end of the interview and you will hear how you might be able to earn the book yourself for free. I will ship it to you. Uh, Super fascinating interview. I really enjoyed it. I think you will too. Here it is, my conversation with Rachel Loudon. Rachel's going to begin the interview by describing how one becomes a food historian. I started off as a geologist. I discovered I was more interested in how science worked 
than in being a research scientist. So I did my PhD in history of science and technology. And then um, I kind of came full circle to a long-term interest in food because I decided that um, food is actually one of our most important technologies. Sure, partly that's agriculture, but partly it's that even after we've um, farmed our food, we have to turn it into something we can eat. And that's a technological process. So um, that got me into history of food. And you actually have an agricultural background yourself, don't you? That's right. As far back as I have been able to trace, um, my family farmed in southern England. Um, my uncles, my grandparents, my great uncles, we had um, lot by those standards of those days, um, large arable and dairy farms. We had about 1,500 acres in um, a rotation of wheat and dairy mainly, but various other things on the side. And at, at what point in your career, Rachel, did you realize some of the things that that we think of when we think of the history of food are, are just wrong? The first thing that occurred to me was when we were in Hawaii. Um, I was teaching at the University of Hawaii, and that's when I first started thinking seriously about history of food. And one of the reasons was that there was a kind of tourist blurb that went on all the time um, about Hawaii's bounty. And yet I realized from the biologists and anthropologists there that actually the Hawaiian islands were a food desert um, until the first humans arrived. When the first Hawaiian, Hawaiians got there, um, the only things that they could eat were fish, seaweed, and flightless birds. Well, the flightless birds vanished within a generation, and they would have just starved had they not brought with them uh, 12 edible plants on their catamarans. And those plants flourished, and they were able to survive. And so everything on these islands has been brought in by humans insofar as it's edible. What that suggested to me was that the current sort of emphasis on the uh, natural food growing in place, the importance of the local, was slightly misplaced because the whole history of food has been moving food plants from one part of the world to another and establishing them so that humans can survive. So you're in, you know, paradise in Hawaii. Whenever anyone thinks about paradise, they think of, you know, kind of a, a land of plenty and all of these fruits and vegetables and coffee and sugar and wonderful things that, that grow there now. And you realize that all of, all of this was essentially brought here by man. Where does that take your intellectual curiosity from there? Well, then I realized that, you know, an islands are awfully good for this kind of thing because they're so isolated that you can actually trace when people or plants come in. On big continents, it can look like they have been there forever. So I began thinking maybe instead of telling the history of food in the world as the history of food in Italy and the history of food in China 
and the history of food in the United States, one should tell it as a series of kind of expansions and migrations of what I call cuisines, systems of eating, systems of um, getting hold of food and preparing food and eating food that have spread sequentially over large areas of the Earth's surface. I mean, one that we've just been talking about was the one that came out of Southeast Asia and across the islands of the Pacific. And that was a way of um, basically eating a root taro, which you cooked in an underground oven. And that whole um, complex of plant and way of preparing it moved as a unit with humans. But we can see the same thing. I mean, you know, like you know, the United States, um, some of the Native American customs of growing and preparing maize come up from what's now Mexico. And then when the Europeans arrive, or the, the British mainly, they bring instead of open fires and maize, they bring wheat and um, baking ovens to make wheat bread so that um, when when people migrate, and the whole history of the human race is one of you know migrating to new places, they take with them these um, food systems or cuisines. And I've read some of your work where you talk about traditional foods. What what a lot of people think is traditional, probably as a result of some you know what you're talking about now. These cuisines that actually have migrated in the past, and then sort of in a very short time, people think of as as traditional when maybe they weren't traditionally from there. Can, can you talk about that and maybe give a few examples of foods that we think are traditional but maybe are not? One that I find people are always surprised by is that, um, for example, Italian pasta um, really wasn't eaten in it, anything like its present form in Italy until after World War II. And there were several reasons for that. One, wheat was too expensive for most people, um, and they ate millet or they ate corn. Um, two, if you want to have dried, there had been soft pastas, um, fresh pastas for the rich, but if you want to have dried pasta, you've got to have an artificial drying room, essentially, because the drying is the tricky bit. And that doesn't come in until the late 19th century. And then it's still the case that most people are too poor to eat it. So the enormous and wonderful pasta um, dishes that we think of as traditionally Italian, most of those have been created in the last uh, 50 to 100 years. And I mean, you can just go on hamburgers are post-World War II in the United States. Fish and chips in England was actually a Sephardic Jewish way of treating fish um, from the Mediterranean. And when the Sephardic Jews migrated to England, or a number of them, in the late 19th century, they took the technique of frying fish with them. And it became popular in England in the early 20th century. If you eat cheese on your Mexican plate, well, they didn't really put cheese on until the 1960s because there was very little dairy in Mexico. It's not a good dairying area until you get certain technologies. So you can just go on down the list like this. And, and there are those, we're talking about sustainability in this series, there are those that think that if we really want to be sustainable, we should look back beyond, even before those traditional foods you just mentioned, to to kind of, you know, the slow food. In fact, there's like slow food movements going on in Western culture right now. Is there truth, you know, to, to this notion that if we just go back to how things were before all this processed food, 
um, you know, maybe, maybe there's more sustainability there? I don't think so. Let me break that down into two things. Let's start, actually. I mean, the first thing I think when you're thinking about sustainability is that the key underlying issue is population growth. And that's not going to come as a surprise to you or your readers, but um, listeners rather, but it really is staggering. When I moved to the United States in the early 1970s, the United States had under 200 million people, and now it's got three and a quarter million people, 325 million people. Sorry about that. Um, the world population has gone up by two billion in you know since 2000. So that the real trick that we've got to do is to figure out to how to feed um, this exploding population. One billion in 1800, eight billion um, in a few years' time. I mean, that's extraordinary. And the question is, how in the world can we um, feed them? And obviously, we cannot feed them in the same way that either agriculturally or in terms of the processing that takes place um, on agricultural products we can't do it the same way we did um, 200 years ago or 400 years ago. We've got to grow more crops on the same amount of land, and we've got to find ways of turning them into food um, without using exorbitant amounts of energy. And um, I think here, what is absolutely crucial is that the only way we're going to do that is what with what gets dismissed as commodity crops. Because commodity crops, but let's just take maize for a second. Maize is just amazing. You can get, uh, the, the whole question is how many calories an acre can you grow? And maize grows more calories per acre than any other plant. 15 million calories an acre you can get. So that makes it possible to feed lots of people from a small amount of land. The other great thing about these commodity crops, uh, corn, obviously, but soy and wheat, is that they can be turned into lots and lots of foods, not just a lot of food, but lots of different food. If you take corn, for example, it can be um, ter traditionally turned into cornbread or tortillas. It can be turned into alcohol. It can be turned now into fat or oil. It can be turned into sweetness so that we can, from this terribly productive crop, get not just a whole bunch of calories, but a whole bunch of nutrients. And if you think of it being fed to animals, then it also turns into meat, which is another you know, important nutrient. So I think, I'm sure many of your listeners think along the same lines, that in order to feed this enormous number of people uh, without destroying the planet, the commodity crops, the grains in particular, are going to have to be absolutely central. That means modern industrial agriculture is absolutely crucial, central to the sustainability of the planet. And now just a quick word from our Sustainability at Scale series sponsor, Marone Bioinnovations. Hey, ever heard of Marone's Bio with Bite? 
Marone Bio Innovations offers modern crop pest protection for the modern organic and conventional production systems. To make sure every grower using their products realize the best possible return on investment, Marone invests time and resources to thoroughly test and demonstrate the efficacy of those new state-of-the-art products. With serious trial data to back it up, you can see more and connect directly with Marone by visiting them at www.maronebio.com. That's M-A-R-R-O-N-E-B-I-O.com. Thank you so much to Marone Bio Innovations for sponsoring this Sustainability at Scale series. There are those that will say, you know, used corn as a great example, calories per acre, but you have, you, you know, you can, you process it in various ways and, and some will point to those processed foods as not sustainable. And I know you have done some work on, on natural foods. So if, if we're looking at something that's not processed, it's natural. There is sort of this feeling out there that people think, well, natural is better. And we always need to be looking at what's more natural. Uh, what's your perspective on that? My perspective on that is that, in fact, we eat almost no natural foods. If by natural, we mean foods that we just eat without any further work, raspberries or oysters or those kinds of things. Um, and leave aside for a moment the fact that the raspberries and the oysters have been carefully bred to be big and fat and tasty. But um, almost everything we eat has been transformed from its natural state. There's an anthropologist at Harvard, Richard Wrangham, who has done research on raw foods. And in fact, if you eat nothing but raw food, um, humans have a very hard time surviving. Um, women start missing their periods. Men and women both start losing weight. And humans are just not... Um, sometime in our evolution, we past the point of no return when we could no longer eat foods that we had not cooked or processed or prepared. I don't mind which word you use. So that we do everything we can to food to make it edible. And there are all kinds of things we do. It's an enormous range of things. So that I understand that processed is a word of disgust and disdain. We don't, you know, oh, we shouldn't eat processed food. That's things like that we use that for work, things we don't like mm -hmm. spam sliced white bread boxed macaroni and cheese which often also turn out to be foods that we think are kind of well not quite as classy as they should be but that said everything we eat has in fact been processed the meat has been cut up and skinned and then it has to be cooked in almost all preparations the grains are ground and baked into bread and if you take fruit and vegetables because lots of people love fruit and vegetables and milk all those have in fact been so uh, engineered and transformed the uh, well, I'll stop there so that you have time to ask another question. We can uh, we can come back to this. But no, I think processed foods are absolutely essential to sustainability. And the question is not whether or not they've been processed, but whether they're good foods. How do you determine that as far as good foods? What do you mean by that? Well, that's really tricky because, you know, you can, you can dismiss foods very quickly by saying they're processed. What counts as a good food? Well, obviously, we want it to be nutritionally good, but anyone who 
who's thought about it for a bit knows that food is never just food. Mm. Um, the circumstances, even nutrition, is a tricky one because, you know, there are times when what matters, my husband had a lot of dental work and he lost 30 pounds in about oh, six weeks and wow. he couldn't lose. I mean, this was not a good thing for him. Mm. He was skinny to begin with. And at that point, I didn't care. He needed calories and just anything that he could eat as he gradually put on weight again. Then I came much more worried about giving him, you know, a good nutritional balance of different kinds of protein and carbohydrates and vitamins and minerals and all that kind of thing. But then it also has to be food that he can eat. And so um, steak was out. So deciding on good food depends on all kinds of factors, whether it's nutritionally complete, whether it's tasty, whether it appeals to the diner, whether it satisfies the culture at the time. So that, you know, a lot of people, I just saw somebody yesterday saying, spam, it's disgusting, it's dreck. Well, you know, try telling that to somebody in Hawaii. In Hawaii, spam is not disgusting. It's really good food. What about uh, fast food? Certainly that is a product of, of the industrial age. Uh-uh. No, I'm afraid not. <laughs> All right. I teed you up for this one. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Well, ancient Rome, nobody had a kitchen. People went to the street and what do you call it? Fast food. Got a sausage from a sausage vendor. Um, got a piece of bread. Um, that's not very different from a hamburger. The particular, I mean, now, you know, with the hamburger as the iconic fast food um, that has, you know, modern trappings around it, frozen meat, flat grill the deep fryer. But there is a myth in the United States that the natural way that people ate in the past was at home and among the family. And certainly that happened, but people ate in lots of other circumstances too. They lived in cities without kitchens because it was too dangerous to light fires in crowded cities. And so uh, they ate street food, they ate fast food, they ate in institutions like the military, like the court, like the convent. They ate when they traveled. There were all kinds of circumstances where people ate that were not um, home-cooked family meals. This is so interesting. I am eating this up, uh, pun intended. <laughs> what other, just in your research, what other sort of big myths have you found out there to be, that you were surprised to not be true? Well, I, I've mentioned a couple of them. The home cooking one, I think the fresh one is a very big one at the moment. I don't think most people understand that in order to have fresh food, I'm sure, sure your listeners do, but many of the general public don't, that we've constructed some of the biggest and most expensive human constructions ever that go technically by the name of the cold chain so that when a raspberry is harvested in Mexico, it goes straight into a refrigerated container. It is moved up to the United States in a refrigerated container. It goes into a refrigerated container in the grocery store, and then it goes into a refrigerator at home. Without that kind of connected chain of refrigeration, we wouldn't have fresh raspberries, nor would we have them without packaging, and nor in the case of, say, fresh milk, would we have it without uh, or eggs? I mean, eggs and milk 
uh, were once seasonal because cows went dry in the winter when they were no longer feeding their calves and eggs, uh, chickens didn't lay eggs. So the fresh is another myth. The Paleolithic diet, I'm sad to say, is a myth. So there are just a few for you. Yeah, interesting. I, I do. I, I've had that conversation before where with someone who thinks you know, if you're moving corn around the world, it's a problem. But if you're moving kale, it's okay. And <laughs> I don't think it's uh, it's always acknowledged that no matter what your diet is, if you want to eat it year round, it's going to come from somewhere else, most likely. Right. Exactly. Um, it uh, certainly is. Yeah. And I know you've written, uh, in fact, the first the first piece of your writing that I was able to read was uh, a plea for culinary modernism. Can you just enlighten us on kind of what that means, culinary modernism? Yes, well, I think there is this general feeling um, that is promulgated by, oh, the food media and um, a number of writers that somehow modern food is a step down from the fresh natural food that people ate at some unspecified time in the past. That's just not true. So I want to say we should realize just how great modern food is, and I'm going to tell you the two reasons why. One, never in the history of humankind has there been such a range of safe, tasty, nutritious, enjoyable food available. Louis XIV, the Sun King of France, Alexander the Great, you name any great person in history, and they would have being bowled over to see that anybody, more or less, in a modern society, um, except those people who are really struggling, but anyone who uh, in the middle class can eat far better than kings and emperors in the past. So that's one way it's great. And the other way it's great is it doesn't take us very long. We are freed up to do other things. Farming, as you know, has had an increase in productivity unrivaled by almost any other industry, whereas 200 years ago, nine out of 10 men had to be farmers. Now it's, what, one in 100, something like that. And the other side of that is 200 years ago, nine out of 10 women, more or less, were working, basically cooking. And, you know, you, you couldn't go out to work. You couldn't be um, like I am. My mother would have loved to be a writer. She was a farmer's wife. She cooked. She cooked from morning to night every day. Nowadays, almost nobody has to do that because of the wonderful, um, available and storable foods that we've got. I, I could just sit here and listen to you talk about this stuff all day, but I, I don't quite know how to answer this question. I just want to get you started talking so I can listen some more because this is so fascinating. But can you talk a little bit more about the kind of the modern agriculture as it relates to the class struggle? You had just mentioned in there just a little bit about how, hey, the middle class today eats better than kings of the past. So I, I think that's something I've never really thought about how modern agriculture has allowed for sort of class mobility. If you put modern agriculture together with modern food processing, absolutely. I mean, uh, there is a sort of downside because it depends on, a lot of it depends on fossil fuels. In agriculture, for the mechanization of agriculture and for the production of synthetic fertilizer, which we need, uh, we, we can't do without it, we need to use it carefully, but it's necessary. 
also the processing. I mean, we do depend on these commodity crops, grains, and the reason they've been so useful, one of the reasons they've been so useful in the past is that they can be easily stored and transported because they're small and hard and dry. But the downside of that is that they're really hard to turn into food that stays in the belly and doesn't just get expelled. And until, oh, the 1970s, say, in Mexico, as you probably know, if you're using corn to make tortillas, you have to treat it with alkali and then grind it wet. And you can't wet grind in most traditional milling facilities. Um, now they've learned how to do it, but it wasn't possible until recently. So you have to do it by hand. And this meant in Mexico, when I first moved to Mexico, that children, as soon as they reached puberty, girl children were given a grindstone and said, okay, now you grind the corn for the family. And grinding corn for a family of five took five hours a day. Hmm. That didn't count collecting firewood. That didn't count making the tortillas. That was just being on your knees grinding. And what modern processing, the big roller mills up in Minneapolis and vacuum pans and all the apparatus in the big uh, food processing corporations does is takes what had been human labor and does it by machine. And that is just a blessing. I think this is stuff we just we don't think about enough. And I, I can't thank you enough, Rachel, for coming on the show and talking about this. We are going to give away. I, I, I bought a copy for me and a copy to give away uh, Rachel's book, Cuisine and Empire. Would you be open, Rachel, to, to a follow-up question? If I ask uh, the audience here, they can leave us a follow-up question and, and you can reply either either on the show or via email. Would you be open to that? Sure. Okay. So yeah, if you just go to speakpipe.com forward slash future of ag, uh, it'll be in the show notes, go to that link and leave Rachel a follow up question about anything we discussed here today. Uh, we will pick one of you and I will send you a book. And Rachel, thank you again for being on the show. Really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. genuinely hope you found that as fascinating as I did. I thought that was just such an interesting perspective, and it's cool to learn the facts about kind of the history of food and some of the assumptions that we think are, are very much unique to the modern age we live in are actually applied uh, generations and generations ago. So very cool. I hope some of you uh, are compelled to go to speakpipe.com forward slash future of ag. Leave us a question. Rachel's been kind enough to answer that question, and we will include that on a follow-up Friday. Follow-up Friday actually is going to start next Friday, so you will find, if you're a subscriber to this podcast, a very short mini-episode on Friday with a follow-up question or comment from one of you uh, from previous episodes. I, I'm excited about this, and it's going to be very, very relevant as well to our next series that we're going to be rolling into uh, that I will be prepared to announce very shortly. Thank you all. We'll be back next week as we complete this series on sustainability at scale. Thank you for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast with Tim Hammerich. Visit futureofag.com that's futureofagag.com today to get connected into careers in the agriculture industry. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.